from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Marketing Matters on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Marketing Matters here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Barbara Kahn, the Patty and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing. And today, I'm thrilled to introduce a guest host who's joining me for the hour. Annie Wilson is a professor of marketing here at the Wharton School, and she's coming in to fill the big, big shoes of Americus Reed, who's on July 4th holiday. So, Annie, are you ready to fill those shoes? I'm going to try my best. So thanks, thanks for inviting me to join with you. Yeah, let's tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got here. So you finished your Ph.D. at Harvard, which is a school we, heart, we don't like to talk about much, a couple years ago. And then you went into industry, right, at Vanguard for a while. And then you saw the light and came to us here at Wharton. Is uh, that a good summary of your uh, background? Right, exactly. So I spent some time as a behavioral scientist in the financial space, um, but now teach consumer behavior and advertising at Wharton. Yeah, so we're very pleased to have her here joining us to talk about some of the issues of the day. Um, so thank you very much. And today we have a really exciting show. A lot. If you've been following the news, there's a lot that's happened in the news. For the first half of our show, we're going to talk about some of the really big, big stories in marketing. And we're thrilled to have Suzanne Kapner, who's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She covers the retail and fashion industries, and she's joining us today. Hello, Suzanne. Hello, how are you? Oh, I'm great. And as we'll talk about in a second, there's a lot of stuff that's been happening in the retail world, and the markets keep following what's going on as consumers' purchasing behavior and retail's ability to follow that demand seems to really drive a lot of what's going on. And some of the really big players had some really big news in the last couple of weeks, which you've written about. So I think that'll be a lot of meat to discuss. So we'll talk about that in the first half. And in the second half, we're going to have Lawrence Scrimma, who's the head of brand marketing for Favor, which is a company that used to be called the Pill Club. It's a digital health company, and it's on a mission to revolutionize healthcare for millennials and Gen Z. And the reason we have her on the show is not only is that a very important issue, but another big piece of news that happened in the last few weeks is the reversal of Roe v. Wade. And so we'll talk a little bit about how marketers are responding to that. Uh, And uh, Lauren has put out some very interesting campaigns that we'll talk about in the second half of the show. So very newsy show today, a lot of stuff going on, and we really kind of want to digest some of that. So let's get first to Suzanne. Um, As I said, she's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She covers the retail and fashion industries. And uh, uh, Suzanne, let's talk about the Old Navy story first, because to me, that's a really interesting story of a company Old Navy, of course, is owned by Gap. Gap can't seem to do things right without, like, falling over their own feet. So, like, I mean, there's a lot of stories that have been going on with Gap. But Old Navy was always the shining light in the Gap portfolio. And Old Navy was trying to do the right thing. So you want to give us a little bit of background on how we got to where we are and why this is such a newsworthy story? Sure. I mean, their heart was really in the right place. They had this idea of offering inclusive sizing for everyone from very, very small people to very, very large people. It had never really been done in retailing before. I mean, you had some petite departments and some plus size departments, but they, what was revolutionary about what they did is they 
they created um, all the sizes would run together in the store. So no matter what size you were, you could get every women's clothing item in any size from a double zero to a four X. And, and, you know, that was really, you know, kind of a breakthrough in retailing. I mean, there's so many things about that that's so interesting to talk about. First of all, there's some retailers, notably Victoria's Secret, I don't know if you've written about them, where they purposely limited the sizes so that they would have a certain type of consumer walk into the store. You know, that was a famous thing. Abercrombie and Fitch might have done that in the past. They've all, like, you know, recognized that was not good behavior. So, But that's not what was going on with Old Navy. I mean, one of the things here is that just in retail, in the apparel business, even before supply chain issues, it's so hard to have inventory for all the sizes. So, like, there's a reason why retailers, right, I mean, typically carry the sizes that most people wear. Right. I think they underestimated the complexity. So when you expand sizes away from sort of that mid-range size, you know, retailers have what they call a fit model, and that's kind of what they design the garment around a particular size. And as you expand up or down from that mid-range size, the proportions change and they don't change all in the same way. So, you, you know, you, the garment might be getting taller more than it gets wider. And you really need to sort of recreate the fit for the sizes as you get larger and smaller. And they did do that. They, they had to change the, the way the waistband sat. They had to change the proportions and and just the, the work that was involved in making sure these garments fit right was quite tremendous. Yeah, and there's a lot of other issues. I mean, like, so in the past, there have been, like, petite stores or departments and I don't know what they called the other side that usually something, you know, women or something like that. For the bigger sizes, they're a little careful about how they call that. And that's typically in different departments. It's not like that clothing didn't exist, but it was separated. And there were some issues I noticed in your article, like bigger sizes compared especially to the teeny tiny sizes can use twice as much material. So part of it is how do you, what's fair in pricing? Right. So retailers tended to charge more for plus sizes, which, of course, made uh, larger women very unhappy. And uh, Diane von Furstenberg at uh, we, Wall Street Journal recently had a conference where she touched on this issue. And she said, well, you know, as a business, if, if it costs us more to make these larger clothes, I mean, should the smaller customer be forced to subsidize the larger customer? You know, it's an issue that these businesses have wrestled with. But Old Navy decided to t- take the high road and they priced every garment the same, no matter the size, which also was very revolutionary. Andy, yeah. Do you? Yeah, so one thing you also talked about in one of your articles was the frustration faced by people in the middle of the sizing continuum um, when uh, at the end of the day or at the end of kind of the sales season, the only the very small or very large sizes were remaining and that this was a magnified problem because Old Navy had expanded the size continuum so much. Um, I'm wondering, too, in your opinion, if if part of that issue was exacerbated even further by the fact that they put all the sizes in one part of the store in one department, rather than breaking them apart into petite or into larger size areas of the store. Um, If this was an an issue of the larger continuum of sizes, or could have been better managed 
um, by categorization, so maybe I wouldn't think I could find the middle size and then get frustrated digging through them, for example. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on. One, they they clearly misforecasted how much how many items they would need in each size. So as you said, they ended up with way too many of the very small and the very large sizes, not enough of the mid sizes, which tend to be the most popular. But the other thing that really frustrated shoppers is having all those sizes lumped together meant that you had to really wade through a lot of different items to find your size or to find they were sold out of your size. And so that created frustration on the part of shoppers. So it was a couple of things happening at once. You know, and we're talking about this when we talk about some of your other stories. Other things going on in the background of this particular issue is general supply chain issues. And then we'll talk about, in, you know, I don't want to talk about it now because it's a whole other story, but like the misforecasting of, say, Walmart and Target and other stores, which they didn't understand how inflation was going to affect what people were buying, et cetera, et cetera. So you had supply chain issues. You had misprediction and difficulty in forecasting consumers' purchases. And then you had this whole big mishmash of size issue and the frustration. I just faced it today. I went to Nike to go buy a pair of shoes, and I happen to be average size, so my size is always sold out. And that's really annoying, you know? So is there a solution to this? Well, what, I mean, I know you're a reporter. You're not like, they don't pay you the big CEO bucks to solve the problem, but what do you think is the solution to all of this problem? It, you know, it's funny you ask because that does drive me crazy that you think with all this data out there, retailers would do a better job of being able to predict how, you know, which sizes sell the most. And there are companies that sort of work on this and help retailers, but, you know, it's an imperfect science and forecasting, so much of forecasting is done on past purchasing behavior. And one thing we've seen during the pandemic is nothing is as it was. Everything's been, you know, there's been so much upheaval. So, it's been very hard for companies to forecast. And when companies that have tried to remake something the way Old Navy did during the pandemic, it's, it's been very difficult to do that with all the other challenges lumped on top. You know, I mean, just to not put Suzanne on the spot, because I know she's a careful reporter, so I'm going to ask for speculation. I'm going to ask Andy this. Like, do you think, uh, Andy, because you could speculate off the wazoo, you're just a professor, um, as uh you know, as Old Navy comes in and, uh, you know, you're you're a person who's used to finding your size and now all of a sudden you're seeing a whole lot of fabric on the store and, it is, you know, this is the issue you brought up and it isn't the size, your size isn't there. What do you think that does to their brand? What do you think it does to their customer experience or customer relationship? Do you think consumers are, like, giving them credit for doing this, like, good deed or are they pissed they can't find what they look for and they'll go somewhere else? I mean, I can answer that okay. because I, I did speak to customers oh. about this very issue. So, Annie, you feel free to jump in. But I will say customers, while, while they, did, they gave Old Navy credit for doing something they felt was kind of the right thing to do, but at the end of the day, they took their money somewhere else because oh. when they couldn't find what they wanted, they got frustrated, and then they stopped going to Old Navy because Jeez. they felt they were not going to be able to get what they needed, and they started shopping elsewhere. So... It, and you could see in the numbers, it was really detrimental to their business. Wow. So you had yeah, data on that. It, it, Wait, let me just reintroduce you, and then I'll ask you an opinion, because I didn't realize, Susanna, you actually had that data. But that's fascinating. I'm Barbara Kahn. I'm here with my 
guest co-host, Annie Wilson, who's the professor of marketing here at Wharton. And this is Marketing Matters. And today we're joined by Suzanne Katner, who's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She covers the retail and fashion industries. And she's talking about what happened this last couple of weeks with Old Navy, who really tried to do something innovative, but in some ways it kind of backfired. So, Annie, what were you going to say? Yeah, so I was sort of going to add to the, my own speculation, as you mentioned. Um, so Barbara knows, at least, that I'm a very petite person. Um, so I actually have been very pleased with Old Navy in recent history because for the first time ever I went into the store and was finding my size um, and wasn't experiencing the frustration of not being able to find it or having to choose between the one or two options in the petite area. Um, and it's fascinating to me just from the perspective of in the spirit of inclusion, they almost accidentally created some sort of inverse exclusion by then leading to frustration of the mid-sized consumer, which was usually the frustration was felt by the people on the different ends of the continuum. Um, I guess from the you know decision to now not stock these sizes, I am curious if, if you have opinions on um, Old Navy's decision to go back on it. So they obviously made a very big deal out of this decision. You've written about this um, in a couple different articles, but uh, they announced this really proudly and they had A.D. Bryant come in and talk about this new thing they were going to do to embrace all consumers and be inclusive, which is what a lot of consumers are calling and asking for. Um, and now they're saying, well, it's, it's not working from a, a stock and, and financial perspective. Do you think that will lead to backlash from consumers or reappreciation? Um, will it undermine the, the, the good effort? Or what do you think will happen with that? They are still offering the extended sizes, but online only. So I think what this shows is the difficulty getting the right size to all of their stores across the country. That's, that's really the tricky part is knowing how many you know, four X's you need in Queens versus extra smalls you need somewhere else. And, but so, so consumers will still be able to find these extended sizes, but only on their website. And that, that is going to frustrate shoppers because a lot of shoppers I talk to, they want to be able to try things on. They want to go into a store and, um, and there was, you know, this outpouring of consumers were so happy they were doing this. So I can only imagine there's going to be a lot of disappointment at this being rolled back. You know, as you're talking, and I was thinking this when I was reading it, we're talking about what quote-unquote new retail will be. And if you, you know, go to China and look at that, a lot of it is this omni-channel. So I'm not at all surprised that one of the solutions is to, you know, try to do something online and try to, you know, figure out the online versus offline kind of continuum in some sense. And we have two models here. I don't know if you've written about this or not, but there's the Nordstrom local model, which is an inventory list store. So what you do is you buy online, I mean, you shop online and you make an appointment and then they bring the inventory into the store to meet you. So that's one way to meet your deal. That's a completely different way of thinking about stores. The other thing is what Nike's done with Nike Live. It's a very sophisticated approach, but you could imagine Gap is a sophisticated retailer, they could figure this out at some point, which is exactly what you were implying, is that they have to do a better class of forecasting. So they should be able to have some sense of the people who, once they kind of open the door and look online and get these data, they should be able to figure out, you know, in in Asia, for example, people run smaller than they do in other parts of the you know world. And so we have a uh, an assortment that favors smaller sizes in one part of the country versus another based on history. I mean, I would think that's where retail should go at some point. Suzanne, do you have an opinion about that? 
It does make a lot of sense. But one thing, uh, one challenge people in the industry tell me is you have to order your sizes on a curve to meet manufacturer minimums, meaning that no matter the makeup of your customer, you have to order a certain number of extra smalls and a certain number of mediums and larges. And it goes on a curve, as you would imagine, with the mid-range sizes being, you know, ordering the most quantities. But there are, so there are, but there are some limitations into how much you can tweak that. So my understanding is that just makes it a little harder to do this in practice. Uh, so there we get into the inclusion-exclusion kinds of rules that are set up by business that seem to favor the quote-unquote average or whatever it is, which goes against. So let's talk about some of these other issues that you've talked about. So another huge story that's been in the, you know, in the news, especially because it really did rock the uh, the stock market a few weeks ago when they announced is what's going on with Target and Walmart. Um, and I know you've written extensively about that. So you want to give us a little history on that and now where we are on all of that? Sure. And it, you know, it goes beyond Target and Walmart to, you know, many, many retailers. What happened was during the pandemic, because of supply chain problems, goods were scarce, yet demand from consumers, particularly for things like apparel and home goods and outdoor furniture was very strong. And so retailers placed very large orders and they placed them further in advance than usual to ensure that these goods would get here in time. But in the time it took for these goods to arrive, demand shifted and we've seen a slowdown and a cooling in consumer buying, particularly of apparel, items for the home, and as they've shifted more to, you know, spending on vacations and dining out, and obviously inflation is taking a bigger bite of their budget, so they're spending more on gas and groceries, less money for other things. So that shift happened pretty quickly. And, you know, retailers like Target, the CEO, you know, said they were really taken aback and surprised by how fast the consumer shifted. And that just left them flat-footed with way too much inventory in certain categories that they now have to discount and clear out and liquidate. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. I can, I can understand that you can't respond. Even if you predicted this, you can't respond as fast because of all the issues you're talking about. you got to get things in advance. you got to get into the store. It's complicated, actually. Retail's a hard business. But, I mean, I felt it myself personally, and I'm sure this resonates with a lot of people. At some point, when you started going out of the house, you realized you had enough sweat clothes, you know, and you started to need fancier clothes. I mean, it just, it, it, you know, when I read those stories and read that that's what was happening, happening, I wasn't surprised by the consumer response because I felt it myself really strongly. I just had enough of all that stuff and I needed new stuff and I was trying to figure out what was in fashion. But the problem is that these retailers just can't respond even if even if they could have predicted. You know, like you said, Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target, was surprised. But what he was surprised was that he couldn't predict it three months in advance. You know, he didn't know what was going to happen. It isn't that he couldn't figure out, you know, on a nice pretty April day when I'm out that I would like to wear something other than the sweat clothes I've been living in. So that's part of the issue. That's, you know, the downside of all of manufacturing everything in Asia. The lead times are very long and, you know, it's, it's hard to, to really um, pivot um, on quick notice. So the other thing you wrote about, which I thought was pretty interesting, is the liquidators and the TJ Maxx's and the Ross are benefiting from this in some sense because they, whenever these retailers miss forecasts, that's like bonanza. You know, that's happy days for these other companies because they really, their model is based on 
misprediction of inventory, which happens all the time in retail. Um, and in fact, they were it was bad for a while when the demand was greater than supply. Now they're flush with inventory. And I don't know, maybe you know this better than I do, but the, dis the distributed models like Burlington or Ross or TJ Maxx, they actually have distribution centers. So they can buy all this stuff at like dirt cheap prices and they can hold it for a while if the demand isn't here and then put it out when the demand is there. And it's like it's really good news for those guys. Is, is that your take? Yeah, absolutely. The, the industry term for that is pack away. And what they do is they buy up out of season goods winter sweaters in summer, that type of thing, and they'll hold it till the following year. What's interesting and happening now is you're starting to see mainstream retailers like Gap talk about this pack-away phenomenon because oh. they have so much excess stuff. When it's, if it's not a fashion item, if it's a T-shirt or a sweatshirt, something basic that won't necessarily go out of style, a lot of them are also packing these goods away and hoping to bring them out next year and sell them. It also suggests something, and Annie, maybe you have some opinions on this, you know, about like a fashion cycle. Because like what you just said is if you're if you got these issues and it's kind of hard to forecast to the degree you can kind of take a little bit of the seasonality and the newness and the fashion out of the good, then it's kind of ever ready more, you know. And I don't know, Annie, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I guess I was sort of sitting here wondering also about the extent to which these trends will continue to be very unpredictable. And so uh, with the current state of the economy and also like inflation, which seems to be never ending on the rise, like that could end up further benefiting those stores like TJ Maxx, Ross, et cetera, um, if they're selling them at a lower price um, or if those Target and Walmart have to discount the goods because they have too much supply. Um, but it, it also made me wonder about um, you know, kind of how we can better predict these trends in the future, if they will eventually settle and become more predictable, or if we need to think about using new sources of data, um, or are there other types of data that we can pair with historical data to better uh, predict demand in the future? So I'm thinking about Barbara said, you know, it wasn't surprising to me that I knew I wanted a nice dress in April uh, to go to that shower. Um, it's surprising to me that Target didn't know that. So there is there are people and consumers who know what they kind of want to buy. I realize this is complicated by the required lag times, but it's making me wonder about potential other sources of data or how we can handle a, a turbulent future as we move forward in prediction modeling. I mean, a lot of retailers are scrambling to use predictive analytics and um, trying to, you know, improve their forecasting, but Another thing they're doing, which to me is sort of, I, I think, maybe not the best decision, a number of retailers I talked to are taking some of the fashion out. So they're, they're adding more basics to their assortment. So just in case they get caught, you know, this stuff will still be saleable. I think that's going to be um, negative for the consumer and, for, and ultimately for their business because we'll just be left with a sea of sameness and things will just not be exciting and fresh and so I think that's sort of a, a, a safe bet, but not necessarily a smart way to go. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking of this thing we've been teaching. I've been teaching marketing for a million years, and there's this thing called wheel of retailing, you know, and what goes around comes around. So, like, what you're talking about is the brilliance behind what was fast fashion. Because fast fashion, Forever 21 or Zara or those kind of things, they had a distribution model where they could produce things right away, and so they could get the fashion out there. Now, of course, in this world of sustainability, they've been 
getting some heat for having things that go out of style. And yeah, but you know, I totally agree. If I, if these clothes, clothes don't really wear out that much. You know, my sweat clothes really do last. I, I don't want to tell you this, but I got stuff from like 30 years ago that still wear. So if it's like not a fashion kind of item, and even if it is, it doesn't seem to bother me, I'm not going to buy new. So part of the thing that keeps things going, like you're saying, if it's not interesting, if it's not fun, people aren't going to buy. That so you kind of have a problem. You got to have new, then you got to forecast it, then you got to do it in advance, or else you got to worry about sustainability issues. So some of these problems, ironically, they're not that new. Retail have been grappling with them forever. I know we have one more story I wanted to quickly talk about. I know we're kind of running out of time, but if we could just tell you what the issue is, Bed Bath and Beyond has had some turbulence. Um, what's going on with them? They were struggling before the pandemic, and they had an activist in their stock, and they replaced a lot of their board. The new board brought in a new CEO, Mark Triton, who was a Target, former Target uh, executive, and he came in with a plan to uh, really revolutionize the business, you know, take out a lot of the clutter, reduce the um, item count, um, add more private label. It was a tremendous amount of change happening all at once, and it happened to kind of coincide with the pandemic, which just made it much more difficult to execute. And it did not go well. They had um, several quarters in a row of falling sales, and uh, Mr. Triton left the company last week, and they're looking for a new CEO. And, you know, they're really um, in turmoil. They, they've burned through a lot of cash. They have liquidity concerns right now and um, they're you know they're in a tough spot you know, it's an interesting model, Bed Bath & Beyond. Like you're saying, this issue between, and I'm, in your story, I know you mentioned this, the difference between consumer demand for the national brands versus the private brands, and they overemphasize the consumer wanting of these private brands. They did something I thought that was brilliant, kind of like a wedding register back in the days to sell China. They came up with this idea of like, getting your dorm room checklist or mm. something, going back to college. Mm. kind. Were they the ones who invented that? Or, I mean, that was a brilliant thing. It must have sold tons of stuff. I, I don't know if they invented it, but they're known for it. And that, that was genius on their part. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, how many parents of college-age kids said that that was just like a lifesaver. And that that is like a wonderful service that they invented. And it really does work. And it you know, that's an example of where they solved a problem for consumers. So that's when you know you have a home run. Yeah, so that was a great idea. And then they mispredicted. But getting back to what we've been talking about all along, it seems to me, because, like, I know what I thought. You know, why didn't they know this? You know, that I wanted some of the national brands. And so, like what you were saying, you know, maybe that was interesting. The CEO came in. But you think he might have tested something before he did this radical idea. Because what we found out from your stories is that consumers wanted some of the national brands. And they just kind of couldn't find them. Um, so... Boy, it's tough being doing business in this world. Well, I guess we're going to stop with the news and like hope that you keep reporting on all of these things. Suzanne, thank you so much for um, being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. And where can people go to find out more about the stories you're writing and what's going on in the Wall Street Journal? They can check out WSJ.com. And thank you, Barbara and Annie, for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's great. Thanks again. And Thank I you. love the stories that you write. They're really pretty important ones. Thanks a lot. Okay.